This is um, on page 13, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, page 13. Genesis 15. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit? My estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. <clears throat> when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi, of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canites, the Canites, Canites, forgive me, Hittites, Perizzites, Riphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gershatites, and Jebusites. Thank you.
I'm one of the ministers here. Super nice to be with you in church this morning. Special welcome to all the dads, grandfathers, and those who exercise some kind of a fatherly influence over younger people. Um, I thought this week I wouldn't make jokes at Peter Dutton's expense like last week, and uh, I'll bring a dad joke for you. So here's my dad joke for the day. Why did the veggie gardener quit his job? Because the celery wasn't high enough. Yeah? Yeah. All right. I thought you'd like that. Okay, um, now listen... No jokes at Peter Dutton's expense, but I do want to um, talk about Prime Ministers. And uh, Bob Hawke was one of Australia's most memorable Prime Ministers, apparently. Truth be told, I only remember him for three things. First was his notorious ability to scull beer. Now, I'm actually not getting judgy here, but um, not surprising that we're a nation with an alcohol problem when this is the most fated aspect of our nation's leader. So I remember Bob Hawke for his famous yard glass. I also remember as a primary school boy when our whole class stopped to watch the final race in the America's Cup yacht race in uh, 1983 where we famously took the cup from the Americans for the first time. And Bob Hawke was wearing a ridiculous Aussie jacket that I think was made out of tea towels. (laughs) And uh, after we won with a beer in hand, he famously declared, any boss who sacks a worker for not turning up today is a bum. Now who remembers that? Yep, basically all the old people. Excellent. Uh, Now, the only other thing, so that's two, the third thing I remember about this celebrated Australian leader was part of the 1987 election campaign, and he said these words, by 1990, no Australian child will be living in poverty. What a gaffe. It's always going to be unattainable. According to the Australian Council of Social Services, some 30 years later, Nearly three-quarters of a million Australian children are living in poverty. And I suspect we just kind of shrug our shoulders at that. I mean, it was just an election promise. He didn't really mean it, or he didn't mean to say it that way. Uh, It was just something he had to say to get re-elected. And I wonder whether we bring some of that natural cynicism to bear when we talk about the God who makes promises. Aren't you a bit suspicious of anyone who makes such grand promises, aren't we meant to be wise to people who make bold claims? Well, folks, today I want to encourage us that God is not only God who makes promises, uh, He is a God who keeps promises, as Emma's already said, and these are sure and wonderful things to stake our lives and our futures upon. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but just to bring everybody up to speed, we are uh, in our series called The Believer's Guide to God. And so far we've seen that God is three, that is three distinct persons, Father, Son and Spirit in one divine essence. And that's essential for our salvation and also for our understanding of kind of community. Last week we then realized that God is a God who creates the universe and everything in it, but then who also turns us into new creations, should we trust in His Son, and who indeed will make all things new at the end of human history. And that's the reason why we worship him and continue to listen to him. But today, we're thinking about the God who promises. And the first thing I want to say is that God has always dealt with us via promises. This is not a new thing. God is a promise-making God. And we're going to unpack that a little bit further from the promises to Abraham in Genesis 15. So I hope you keep that open there in your Bibles in front of you. 
But before we go there, we actually just need to step back a bit to realise that we have no natural entitlement to the promises of God. It's a remarkable thing that God might condescend to make a promise to people like us. You remember from the first week, God is. He exists eternally in a fully self-sufficient community of love and glory as Father, Son and Spirit. That means he did not need us for anything. And yet he created us, not because he lacked love and relationship, but out of the abundance of love and relationship that always existed between the persons of the Trinity. So God creates, though we had no entitlement to this, and then he speaks through creation, but much more specifically he speaks through his prophets and ultimately through the person of his Son. You ever realize there's no uh, guarantee that God would make himself known to us? Uh, again, it's out of his abundant grace that he might speak in words that we can understand, that we might know him personally. And that it's even more amazing that when he speaks, he makes promises for our benefit rather than just words of condemnation. Now that is outstanding, given our human proclivity to rebel against him and to push him out of the picture when it comes to running our lives. To even utter that phrase, God makes promises, is a remarkable thing that ought to have us falling off our chairs, given how unlikely and unmerited it is. Nevertheless, God always deals with humans. He's always dealt with humans via promises. And we're going to look very briefly at the promise or the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 to see that. So have that open in front of you. The story of the Bible up to that point involves the creation of all things by God, then the rebellion of humanity, uh, firstly by Adam. Then we see Adam's rebellion go viral as one of his sons kills another in the story of Cain and Abel. And then that rebellion went global to the extent that God sent a great flood, an act of anti-creation upon the earth, and pretty much started again with Noah and his family. But not much changed because there on the plains of Babel, humanity sought to make a great name for themselves without reference to God, building a tower to reach the heavens. And humanity has pretty much been doing the same thing ever since, trying to make a great name for themselves without reference to God. But into that disappointing scenario, God appears to an unlikely candidate called Abram and promised this childless man a great nation from his offspring, a land of his own, the promised land, and that he would be a blessing to the world. Now that's all in Genesis 12. And, and just to show you that God's promises are not contingent upon finding star human recruits, the next few chapters reveal shades of brilliance, and also befuddling worldliness on Abram's behalf. Yet at the very start of Genesis 15 that was read to us by Karen, you can see Abram's obvious concern that God would not fulfill his earlier promises because he remained childless as an older gentleman. So what would God do? Verse 4, he, uh, for starters, restates his promise to Abram. And then he gives him a memorable visual pledge taking him outside on a stunning eastern night sky and says looking at the stars so shall your offspring be 
And you see there, have a look, very important, verse 6, Abram's critical response, which is picked up by the New Testament as a model of faithful belief. Abram believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. That is, God counts that kind of belief as righteousness. That kind of belief is saving faith. But then God goes even further than merely restating his earlier promises to Abram. God covenants himself. That means he binds himself to his promise by way of an elaborate ceremony, which is spelled out for us in verses 8 to 17. So you see there in the text, Abram uh, got animals ready for what he must have thought was just a pretty ordinary kind of uh, sacrificed ritual. And he cut some in half and he arranged them carefully. And then when a deep and dreadful darkness came over Abram, God set out the, the complicated route by which his promises would be fulfilled. Let's track this together. Verse 13, it's going to involve the exile and the mistreatment of Abram's descendants for some 400 years. It's going to result in the punishment of their captors, that is the Egyptians. But in the meantime, says verse 14 and 15, Abram's going to die. And his descendants would eventually return to the promised land. But there's some connection in that timing to the prolific and overwhelming sin of the inhabitants of that land. That's the Amorites in verse 16. And so before we move on, I want us to see that it's really worth noting that the path to the fulfillment of God's promises is sometimes pretty rocky. It might take time. There might be pain along the way. And I do not see guarantees that fulfillment is going to flow effortlessly and easily from the promise, at least not in the way that it affects us. Now, that's worth bearing in mind, friends, Sometimes the path to fulfillment can be a pretty rocky one. But as we return to Abram here in verse um, 15, in Genesis 15, uh, actually we return to God, don't we? Because there in verse 17, God appears as a smoking firepot, it's a little strange, and a blazing torch, and he passes between the two lines of halved animals. And that seems rather odd and uh, maybe bizarre to us, but I think God is effectively saying to Abram, May what happened to these animals happen to me. Should I not uphold my end of this promise, this covenant? God makes a promise, a binding promise that is there called a covenant in verse 18. And traditionally it was described as cutting a covenant. May what happened to these animals happen to me. Should I not uphold my end of the deal? A binding promise made by God to a human being. The initiative comes from God. The impetus is from his side of the aisle. And this is worth just pondering for a moment because most human covenants, like marriage, for example, is far more bilateral. It's far more even-sided. Now, I love conducting weddings. I get to do it from time to time as my job. They're wonderful occasions. Everyone is happy. Everyone is happy because there's free food. That's the basic reason. But everyone's happy. They look great. It's a very, it's a very easy gig, um, especially once the vows are over, because the couple, they're, they're stressed out about the vows. They're going to muck up the vows. That never happens. You know, the bride never accidentally uses the name of her ex-boyfriend in the vows. No groom accidentally has vowed to always leave the toilet seat up or anything like that. It doesn't happen. And in fact, assuming that the couple haven't written their own vows using 
you know, like Apache love poetry or Woody Allen quotes or something silly like that. The vows are very symmetrical, if not identical. They promise the same things to each other and they rightly expect the same things from each other. Very symmetrical. There's a match. But the covenant between God and Abraham is asymmetrical. Okay, there's not a match. In fact, the promises between God and humans are always asymmetrical. For starters, the initiative comes from God. We don't make a bargain with God. He makes a covenant with us. Our role is not to negotiate with God. Our role is to believe him when he binds himself to his promise. Now that is the kind of archetypal response when God makes a promise. We believe. We see it in Abram and it's credited or it's counted to him as righteousness, as saving faith. And if we were just to scroll through the Old Testament quickly, we learn that God doesn't just make kind of a covenant or a binding promise with Abram. He continues this habit with his people, often in dramatic ways. He makes a, a covenant with Noah, even before Abram's day, never to destroy the world again by flood. And he seals that covenant with a sign, a sign of the rainbow. You might have even seen one today. He covenants with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus amidst rumbling thunder and lightning, promising that amongst all the nations of the world, ancient Israel would be his treasured possession. And then he covenants with David, as Em has already referenced, that there would be an everlasting king from within David's family line. But friends, I think it's a little later where the promises made in the Old Testament really start to pique our own personal interest because the prophets spoke of a new covenant that would come. In Ezekiel 36, God promised he would put his spirit within his people to move their hearts towards obedience. And he promised that he would be their God. And then in Jeremiah 31, this is what God says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, friends, it's not enough for God just to exist or nor for him to create us, nor for him to speak to us with words that we could understand, nor even to bind himself to promises that he had made to Noah or Abram or Moses or David. He further promised that he would give us his spirit, that he would move in our hearts, that he would write his instruction upon our very souls so that each of us would know him personally from the least to the greatest, even the youngest, even the weakest, even the meekest is caught up in that promise. Boy, that sounds just a little bit like no Australian child. Well, I wonder what becomes of this promise, this so-called new covenant. A study was done by the University of Massachusetts and it revealed that 60% of adults can't have a 10-minute conversation without lying. Um, and even that number was deceptive because the people in the study who did lie told an average of three lies during that brief chat. And I know what you're all thinking. 
you're, you're right there thinking, well, I'm part of the 40% who didn't lie. But that's what the people who lied in the study thought as well, you see. And when they watched the taped conversations back, they were shocked at how easily and how many fibs they had told. Apparently 40% of us lie on our resumes, whilst that's something uh, for employers to be wary of. If you're looking for love on an internet dating site, it's much, much worse. According to uh, Scientific American, 90% of people looking for a date online lie on their profile. 90%. Worst of all, I think, in a survey by a British film rental company, 30% of people lie about having seen The Godfather. Such a classic film, we assume that everyone has seen it and we desperately want to fit in, so we lie and say that we've seen it when we haven't. And this in turn makes everybody else feel like everybody else has seen the film. And before you know it, three out of every ten of us are trying to carry on a conversation about an offer you can't refuse, about a classic film you've never even seen. Now, we're naturally suspicious of our politicians' promises, aren't we? And statistically, most of us are liars as well. So what becomes of the promises of God we've been thinking about today? Well, they are, of course, fulfilled by Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and they're answered in the affirmative. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 has these great words. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you, was not yes and no, but in him it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Those Old Testament hopes find their end, their goal, their fulfillment in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. God keeps his promises in Jesus. But let's look at one specific way uh, that Jesus fulfills this hope of the new covenant that's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 9. Got it up here. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So sins are pardoned and sinners are freed from the punishment that would attach to them. The way is made for us to receive the promised inheritance of that new covenant that was first mentioned by the prophets of old, but only because Jesus lived obediently among us and died sacrificially for us and rose again triumphantly and as mediator perfectly represents us to God. Only because he lived, died and rose again. And if you think about the promises under this new covenant, they're manifold, many not only is there forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit residing in our spirits, which are the two primary promises of the gospel, what about these additional promises? There is no more guilt or condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You have a new status of righteousness if you trust in Jesus to the degree that God views you and treats you as obedient as his son was in his earthly life. My goodness. You have certain hope in this life. There will be an end to all evil and a righting of all wrongdoing. You will inherit a glorious resurrection body. There will be no more pain and death. We will see Jesus face to face. 
God will never forsake us or leave us alone. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, made possible by him, made certain, in fact, by his life and death and resurrection. So I want to just think a little bit about what this means for us. I'm going to suggest one thing it means in terms of our relationship with God and one thing it means in terms of our relationship with one another. So firstly, to God. When God makes a promise, our response is belief. Abram believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness, as saving faith. He looked at the stars. He believed that God would be true to his word despite his age and the complicated pathway to fulfillment. And God was true to his word. So we deal with God not by making a bargain with him, somehow trying to negotiate terms with the Almighty. He makes promises to us and our job is to believe him and to believe those promises. Now what might this look like at ground level? in relation to one of the promises of God. Well, let's think about this. For example, the promise there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a very bold promise that is made to us at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. No condemnation. Guilt and shame have been washed away if you are in Christ Jesus. That is, if you trust in him. Now, it seems to me that we all carry around with us a degree of guilt and a degree of shame for things that we have done or failed to do. Perhaps things we have said or failed to say, or even things done to us, or perhaps which should have been done to us, but weren't. And that might be very real and pressing upon us on a day like Father's Day. But it's one of the great blessings of life with Jesus, that is life under the new covenant, that there is no longer condemnation, now, why is it that we continue to feel shame and guilt and condemnation, which stops us from living as liberated people of the Lord? We can feel weighed down by our guilt. We can feel scared that our pasts might come into the light. We can believe the accusations of the evil one who whispers into our consciences and our souls, how can you possibly think that God might love you? let alone others might love you. Now, of course, accusation is the devil's strategy 101. I mean, it's his main page of his playbook. And yet that weighs us down. It causes us to turn inwardly and despair. Could that actually be right? That God cannot love me? And that naturally turns our attentions inwards onto ourselves rather than upwards in worship of him and outwards into service of others. I'm not sure you can find a place in the New Testament that refers to Christians as sinners in the present tense. You find it referring to our past lives. You know the standard designation for believers in the New Testament is saints. That is God's holy people. I bet you don't think of yourself like that, do you? But our job as Christians is to believe that, that we are considered by God to be his holy people, to be his saints, his beloved ones. His dear children, not unlovable scum who remain under condemnation in a way that leads us to despair and introspection when we were made to glorify God and serve others. It makes a very practical difference at ground level. In all God's promises, they are fulfilled in Christ. They find their yes in Him. Hallelujah. 
but also the fact that God makes promises impacts our interactions with one another. Because if God keeps his word, then it follows that we are to be people of our word too. I think it was Napoleon Bonaparte, the famous French military commander, who said, the best way to keep, one word, to keep one's word is not to give it. Well, that's just gutless, isn't it? And really bad advice for Christian people. We tell the truth. We don't lie. We follow through. If we haven't seen the Godfather, we don't pretend that we have. We don't need to make brash oaths. We simply need to let our yes be yes and our no be no. In our working lives, if we say we're going to do something, we do it. Or we honour the deal that we made. Or we own up to our mistakes when they come to light. And in our home lives, we don't lie to our children or our spouses. And if we promise something, we come good on our promise, even if that turns out to be costly or inconvenient. And if we fail to, we own up to our own shortcomings and we ask for forgiveness and we learn from getting it wrong so that we might get it right next time. And in our leisure time, if we say we're going to turn up to something, we turn up, even if we don't feel like it at the last minute, even if we get a better offer at the last minute. And let me say, for those of us who are still avid cricketers, if we know that we nick the ball on its way through to the keeper, we walk, even if the umpire says, not out. Because God kept his promises, even though it cost his son his life. Well, that's inconvenient, isn't it? We keep our promises, and we don't lie either. Uh, Bob Hawke, he's uh, apparently uh, one of our most memorable prime ministers, but remembered mostly for beer and broken pledges. But God remarkably deals with humanity on the basis of promises, promises and covenants in which he binds himself to us. He did it with Noah and he did it with Abram and he did it with Moses and he did it with David and then he had the boldness to do it with us also, coming good on all his promises in the person of his son, the resounding yes in fulfillment to all his pledges. Well, friends, in comparison, our job is rather simple, isn't it? We just believe his word and we keep ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, praise you for speaking to us in words that we can understand. We confess we have no entitlement to that. Praise you even more for the promises that you've made, the covenants you've made with us for our benefit and Lord help us to believe them rather than try to negotiate bargains with you <laughs> and furthermore because you make promises and keep your word help us to be people who do the same who keep our word and who don't lie and we praise these things that we might bring honour and glory upon Jesus name Amen I'm going to hand over to Bruce who's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper